Divorce causes such misery. God likens it to murder. So why would he allow it in his law? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Divorce causes so many problems in society. It, it hurts the children that are involved in the marriage. It hurts the husband. It hurts the wife. You look at how much, with the family being the building block of culture, that as you undermine that through divorce, like we're seeing in our culture, it's played out all over the place. This creates all kinds of divisions, all kinds of problems, all kinds of, of just real misery in the society. So with that, at the same time, we read in like Deuteronomy where God says that there's cases where it's legitimate to give a certificate of divorce. So why would God allow something that's so damaging to be allowed in his law at all? And how does this play out in regards to remarriage? So you talk about it being so damaging, and you can think of all of the terrible things that it does to actual literal families. And, and it's damaging that the human effects of divorce are just, you know, they're massive. And as we live in a culture where there's more and more divorce, those effects are just piling up so that now people aren't even getting married. So, so you're getting these kinds of situations where they're not even forming those kinds of marriage bonds, and yet they're acting like husbands and wives, and that's even worse in a sense. It's just, you know, you see the disintegration of the family because of this. So it's terrible in that sense. But anytime you want to talk about marriage as a Christian, you have to say, what is marriage? What's the point of marriage? And you have to go to Ephesians 5 because that's, that's just sort of where everything starts. When, when Paul is talking about marriage, he's giving specific and practical instructions to husbands and specific and practical instructions to wives, and they're related, they're, they're rooted in what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, but then he elevates it above that, and he's saying, hey, look, the whole point of marriage is really to talk about this is a picture of Christ and this is a picture of the church. So when God is putting these laws about divorce in the Old Testament, and when they're discussed again in the New Testament, you have to say, well, what does it mean for that? You can't just talk about it at the, the social level, about a particular man and a woman, um, although, you know, we do that in it because the effects are devastating, but you have to say, what is it, when, when God's allowing this, what is the picture that he's showing given what we know from the New Testament in one of those really, really clear passages that peels all of the veils back and says, hey, this is, this is a picture of a heavenly thing, and now you know what it is. I mean, the text for this is Ephesians 5, 30 to 32. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this is, this is Paul's summary statement after giving a lot of those really practical instructions. After all of that, he says, and the reason that you do these things, the reason you'd be a good husband, the reason that you'd be a good wife is because one of you is a picture of Christ and the other is a picture of the church. And this is one of those things where he says this is a great mystery. And so, I mean, when you, you reference Deuteronomy, and so this is given in, back in Deuteronomy where divorce is given. Paul here in, in the New Testament after the death of Christ is writing to Ephesians, and he's telling them this is a great mystery. In other words, this is something that divorce was instituted, divorce was done, divorce was practiced, divorce existed. And it's not until after the death of Christ that, that God is willing to pull back this cover and say, do you understand exactly why I'm telling you these things? Do you understand why these things exist? That he's revealing these things to the church as the church is becoming, has his spirit that we can understand that this really is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this isn't, this is something that was hidden, but it was, but it was baked into the world, and it was designed to be there from all along so that we could, when this was revealed, that we could understand these things. And it's interesting because when you look at Ephesians 5, it's talking about marriage, obviously, not divorced. You know, and so some of the things that you were saying, people are going to listen to that and go, it talks about marriage, it's not talking about right. divorce at all. Because it's interesting, in the New Testament, Paul says this is the great mystery, but he actually is a lot more explicit about it being between God and Israel. In the Old Testament, he's explicit that that's what divorce is about. Right. Divorce is about his relationship with Israel and then his relationship with Judah. And so it's in the Old Testament, that's already been revealed. So you should actually be able to figure out, well, if, if divorce is about 
God in Israel and God in Judah, then isn't this about Christ in the church? But that very much ties to divorce at the same time. Right. A clear example of that, Jeremiah 3, 1, they say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. And that's, you know, saying Israel is my wife, Judah is my wife, and they get divorced because they forsake God. Right, a few verses down in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 8, it's explicit, right? The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. And so you have divorce being very explicitly tied to the idea of God putting away this nation, putting away the nation of Israel. He gave him a certificate of divorce. It's very explicit from Jeremiah 3.1 that he's not allowed to return to her. So this law that was made for man and was given to man and applies to man and man is to follow it, it actually was given so that we could understand something about Christ's relationship to Israel and to Judah. So when you think about it that way and then tie it back to what God says in Matthew 19, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so now all of a sudden, that hardness of heart, you have a better picture of what it means because God has made it very, you know, it's it's not this thing that can happen. It's not a thing that happens. It has to be both parties, right? Because Christ didn't have hardness of heart towards Israel when he divorced Israel. Right. It was Israel that had hardness of heart, not Christ. So it doesn't mean that both parties have to have it to, in order to divorce. It doesn't mean that you're in sin because you had hardness of heart because you divorced. It means we have this picture of what, what it looks like and what hardness of heart looks like. And it's interesting that when you even see that that part in where he says that from the beginning it was not so, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there's this part of where people go, oh, he's massively changing it. But even in the Old Testament, the word that they were allowed to put her away for was always uncleanness. It was uncleanness. And what he's saying Which is— literally that—it's translated uncleanness, but literally the Hebrew words to be means to be naked. Right. And so there's this part of it where it wasn't like those who looked at what God said— those who looked at what was said from the beginning couldn't understand what it was for. I mean, it's like it's not this massive shift that's going on. He is clarifying and going, you understand what it was for. You understand what I gave this to you for. You understand what the cause of divorce was for, which is, again, why he ties this back to harlotry and idolatry. You have the picture of Hosea and Gomer. I mean, you have all these pictures throughout Scripture that are about the reason for a divorce is because of spiritual harlotry, because of spiritual infidelity in the marriage, because of unfaithfulness and sexual immorality. And so there's this part of it where God's just being really, really, really clear. Do you understand it's always been about this? And when it says from the beginning, I mean, in the beginning there was no sin, right? Right. So doesn't that play a part in it? Because there were a lot, there was no repentance in the beginning, there was no civil magistrates in the beginning. It doesn't mean that those things aren't good just because they weren't in their proper place, even though they weren't from the beginning. And I mean, as we talk about this and talk about that this is part of the gospel, because this is this is how Christ marries the church, is he has to put away Judah. He has to put away Israel for him to marry the church. And so when we look at this, we have to recognize, though, at the same time, there's a lot of people who want to go, there's no biblical grounds for divorce ever. And they see the problems of divorce, and some of them, I think, have sincere motives that they're trying to stop divorce. The problem is is that then all of a sudden you make Jesus Christ to be a sinner because he is saying this law applies to him. He's not saying this law just applies to you. In Jeremiah 3, he's very explicit. It applies to God. Or, or you could say in a sense of the reason why the law applies to us is because this, it is, he is behaving righteously. Right. He's I mean, defined it's not that he is constrained by the law, but then in the end, right. his righteousness is going forth, and we're being held to his righteousness. We're being shown his righteousness, but he was absolutely righteous 
in divorcing Israel and Judah. There was no unrighteousness in him when he did that. But it is important to recognize at the same time when they, before they even signed the covenant, right, before God or Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the, the tablets of stone, which is basically the written covenant that, that God entered into with, with Israel in, in uh, Exodus 24, when he comes back with that, they've already committed idolatry. They've right. already made the golden calf. They've already bowed down and worshipped it. They already did the the physical sign, right? They rose up and played. They did the physical sign of spiritual idolatry by having sexual idol- sexual adultery. And so they had already done it, and God didn't go, now's the time to divorce. I caught you, right? The equivalent of the wedding night, he caught them committing adultery, and God waited 750 years or something like that before he actually put away Israel. So when we think about hardness of heart, this really informs what hardness of heart looks like. It doesn't mean, ha, I finally caught my spouse doing something that they shouldn't have done, so now I can get rid of them. Woohoo! Then you have hardness of heart. You ha- we have a picture of what it looks like to have hardness of heart. And it's worth looking at the actual law in Deuteronomy that Christ was referring to in Matthew. And that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this is the passage that we were talking about a minute ago, uh, where that uncleanness is referring to sexual immorality. And it's referring to nakedness. And I think when you look at this, right, I mean, it's the only time in the law that it really talks about divorce. It talks about divorce and that, like, a Levite can't marry a divorced woman and other things. But the only time it really talks about the process of divorce, the main focus of the passage is that if you marry, if you divorce her, she marries somebody else, that you can't take her back. And so when you think about Jeremiah 3, basically the knowledge in the law that we have about divorce is primarily about what was fulfilled with Israel and with Judah in Jeremiah 3. And that's what he mostly gave the law about, even though it has real practical implications for, for people that are trying to walk in God's law. And also in the original law here, you can very clearly see that remarriage is allowed. I mean, both the person who was divorced can, re- can remarry and the person who divorced the wife, they can remarry. They're just not allowed to remarry the person who they divorced. And so, I mean, it's it's... Remarri- if there was another marriage in the middle. Right. Remarriage is allowed, you know, remarriage is allowed within divorce from the beginning. Are we to make anything of the the way it phrases it where it's not saying you may divorce your wife? Right. It, it's it definitely says not when you divorce you- your wife, you may not, when she, if you marry someone else, remarry her. Right. That's why I was saying that the focus of it is not on even even codifying how divorce should take place. That's kind of secondary to it. The primary focus of it is about you can't remarry somebody who you divorced because that is about the history of the world, right? I mean, that is really significant. It's saying that when God divorced Israel, he cannot take that nation back. When he divorces Judah, he cannot take them back. And so that has huge eschatological implications. And that's what the focus of the law is, not actually about the process of divorcing but about what happens when you do that. So when he warns Judah, if you follow like your sister and you get divorced, it means they are no longer the people of God. It means that he can't go back to them. He cannot take them back as a nation. doesn't mean he can't take back individuals, which is clear from Romans 11, but he can't take them back as a nation or he's violating the purpose for which he gave the law. Because the law isn't about codifying divorce, it's about codifying what you can do once the divorce has happened. I think right after that previous passage we quoted in Jeremiah, it's not very long where he talks about after he divorces them as a nation, he will take one of a city, or he'll take two of a household. So, I mean, he's even referencing specifically, there are Jews that I will bring back in. It's not, he's not saying there will be no Jews who are saved, but he is not taking, but as a nation, as a people who he had joined himself to and said, they are my wife they will no longer be his wife as a nation. 
And so, you know, when we talk about this, I do think it's really important to make the point that a lot of people think the gospel is really simple, right? Man fell, you know, we need a Savior. God created us, man fell, we need a Savior. Jesus Christ came to pay for our sin, we're reconciled, and then we, we resurrected and we dwell with him forever as his bride. Yes. Which we don't is disagree true. with any of that. We don't disagree with any of that. But that's sometimes called the simple gospel. And we need to recognize the gospel is a lot more complicated than that. That there's, That's an important part to believe what I just said. But at the same time, it's also important to recognize there's a lot more complexity to it, too, because God isn't just—he's not that simplistic in what he did. The whole thing about divorcing Israel, the whole thing about divorcing Judah— this is so that we can understand what hardness of heart looks like. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says that the reason that God had the, all these things happen is for examples for us so that we can see it and we can fear. We can recognize this is what it looks like for a people that, that say they're the people of God. They say they're Christians. They say they're fine with God. But the reality is they're just idolaters that God puts away. If the gospel was so simple, he could have had, you know, Eve has Eve give birth to Abel. Abel steps on the snake's head, says, boom, Jesus Christ comes. I mean, it just it could have all been incredibly shortened. There was no need for 4,000 years. There was no need for all the things that happened because all of those things were pointing toward different things. All of those things were... All of those things add up to the hardness of heart, right? When God says, your generation, you know, that put to death the part of their hardness of heart was that... They put to death the prophets, that they put to death the—I mean, all these things were piling up. And so, like you said, the gospel is much more complex. Otherwise, there's a huge amount of history that that is pointless. I think when Paul talks about the marriage as being this picture between Christ and the church, there's a sense we're so familiar with that that we don't even think about the details of what does that mean. And think think about just your actual relationship with your actual husband or wife. And the complexity that that has to it, and just all of the and, and and the fact that the complexity that your marriage has is very different than the complexity that Charles's marriage has, et cetera. You know all the and they're and that they're all very different kinds of ways, and and that 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 one little tiny window you have with all of the angles and the edges and the complexity to it, that's a picture of Christ in the church. Every single one of those is a picture of Christ in the church. Every single one of those, by extension, is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of, of personal salvation, but you know, more often in Scripture, it's a picture of how God deals with his people, those people who are called right. by his name. In the Old Testament, it's Israel, then it's Israel and Judah, and then in the New Testament, it's the church. And when we think about Christ also saying that you know, there's there's one man and one woman, you know, in the beginning, and that the two knew each other and they became one flesh. You know, when you think about that, that also requires something else. That requires Christ not to be married when he comes, or at least when he ascends. Because the reality is, is that Jesus Christ has to divorce Judah, or it would be sin for him to marry the church. People want to pretend like he didn't marry Judah, but the scripture is clear. It even uses sexual language related to God seeing Israel and going in under her because he knew it was the time of love. I mean, the language is very explicit that that she was his bride. And there's two parallel pictures because God doesn't have to have everything fit into one picture. There's the, the elect from the foundation of the world that is his bride, and he never marries any other. But in a real physical, ongoing sense, he did marry Israel. It splits into two. He's then married to Israel and Judah. He has, he's a polygamist at one point, and then, it, it, and then he divorces Israel, and then later he divorces Judah. And then he has to do that to marry the church. So when we look at it and we look at what's all going on in the New Testament, we have to recognize that this picture is him going to his own. He's going to his bride, and his bride will not receive him because she is so hard of heart, she already killed the prophets, etc. And so then he puts her away, so then he can pay the bride price and marry the church. And, you know, related to that, in Isaiah 50, I mean, God says the same thing again, right? Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? 
Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water. And die of thirst, I clothe the heaven with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You can see by reading that whole passage, it starts with him saying, I've divorced Judah, because he's talking about Judah there, not Israel, because in the end he gets, you spit on me, you plucked out my beard, the things that were fulfilled in Christ. So for him to be able to marry the church, he had to divorce Judah. So when we think about divorce, we have to, to put these, these thoughts about Christ and, and his people into that mix, because there's a lot of people who look and go, oh, divorce is always wrong. Well, then Jesus sinned. And there's a reason. I mean, it's like, so in an episode about divorce where there's so much of a practical aspect, we spent the first 15, 20 minutes talking about the doctrinal aspects of this and the aspects, and not just, and not doctrinal in like some dry sense, in the sense of the true marriage that is going to happen, the one marriage that will last for all eternity, because in heaven you won't be married, even if you have a marriage and it lasts your entire life, in heaven that person won't be your husband or wife for eternity so all of this, the reason why we did that is because as we talk about some of these practical aspects, you have to have it in, you have to think about it in the sense of why all this matters. Because if your divorce, if your marriage and your divorce is just about your happiness, if it's just about your, your peace on earth, if it's just about what, what, what pleases you, then who cares? then, you know, divorce whenever. Then just, you know, divorce whenever you're not happy and this is the world that we've lived in. But marriage is much more important than that. Divorce is much more important than that. And I think as the church has become more man-centered rather than God-centered, where its focus is on pleasing man rather than pleasing God, this is where you see a lot more divorce in the church. This is where you, because the shift is real and it happens and it has real consequences. When it's about glorifying God, you go, you know, if we apostatize, this is this is how God says that you're you're not my people. This is how God. This is what it means. And now all of a sudden, we're just embracing this because we're saying that the center of our life should be our own feelings, our own comfort, our own ourselves, rather than God. So, I mean, one thing I think that's really clear that we should point out is God hates divorce. And I mean, and so I mean, just the fact that we've talked about the fact that God divorced Israel, the fact that it's part of the gospel, the fact that all those things are true doesn't turn around and go, divorce is a great thing, and you should divorce. That God loves people when they divorce. God, God does not love divorce. And you can see that in Malachi two fifteen to sixteen. But did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And that phrase, it covers one's garment with violence, that's where Dan was talking about earlier, is God compares it to murder. This is taking something and rending it, taking something that is of one flesh and rending it apart. Where scripture says what you know what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You cannot take something that has been made one and rip it apart without causing real damage, without causing real harm. It is surgery, it is brutal, it is it is like murder. And this passage makes a lot more sense in the context of the rest of the discussion that we've had, where it says, Therefore let take heed to your spirit, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. What we've, what we've had before is setting the bounds on what treacherous dealing is. Because if you think if, if a marriage is a picture of how God relates to his people, well, there's no time when God ever dealt treacherously with his people. He just doesn't do that. God is always faithful. And the cases in which God divorced a people are cases where it was the people who were the ones who were dealing treacherously. And he specifically used the word treacherously. Right, right. And, and it's, and that's why the, the, 
the the big bold here's your exception for the grounds for divorce is sexual immorality is because throughout the Old Testament, like we've already referenced, the idolatry is often used as it's the the metaphors for idolatry and sexual immorality are just you know right there all the time. So it's saying, you know, when when the people of Israel go after other gods, when they start worshiping other gods, what God says to them is, "Look, you're you're leaving me behind and you're treating other men like your husband. You're treating other gods like your husband, not me." But God never treats another people. You know, God God never does that. And then he never treats his people when they are being faithful to him. He never deals with them treacherously. There's no time in which he doesn't do everything that a husband should do. He never abandons them. God doesn't do that. And and so when he says that he hates divorce, um, we're, we're reading that as not that he hates both parties in the divorce, but that he hates this, uh, this happening. Sometimes he hates that both parties are doing it. Uh, sometimes he hates that the sin of one party has destroyed the marriage. And the other party... He doesn't hate what they're doing because they didn't sin in the matter. And you look at Israel, and he even you know, kind of says that with Israel, right, is that he goes, I desire that you turn and repent. I don't take delight in the death of the wicked. But at the same time, there was a point where he went, I'm going to divorce Israel. And there's a point where you reach, you reach that level where, you know, and, and again, you know, God is God. He did not deal treacherously. But when we look at those things and we say, when did God say it was okay to divorce? You know, it's important to recognize that God, you know, extreme long-suffering, right? You know, (laughs) at least 10 of our lifetimes. He was long-suffering with Judah and he was long-suffering with Israel before he divorced them. Just because somebody cheats once does not mean that you can then go, they are hard-hearted. That is not at all what God did. God kept calling them to repent. He kept calling them to turn back towards him. There were times where he turned, they turned back towards him. He chastened them in certain ways to get them to turn back towards him. He tried to deal with them. He, right, there was many things he did before he finally said, your heart is hard. So when we read it and we recognize, you know, like you said, it's case law. So we need to look at the cases of how he dealt with it before he finally did the certificate of divorce. And they were very extreme, right? I mean, it wasn't like that they were... You know, he gave them time. They were very extreme before he did it. He made appeals to them. I mean, these are all the cases of what, how you actually determine if somebody's hard-hearted. You don't just go, you know, well, they, somebody seduced them, so forget it. I'm getting divorced. It, you go, what does God say about divorce? How does he say it should take place? What are the cases and the examples in, in the life of God and in, in his in the history that he produced with Israel and Judah, what what makes things that indicate hard hardness? Right. I mean, when you look at like the story of uh, of Jose and Gomer, Ho- the story of Jose and Gomer, you look at that and you go, you couldn't imagine a man being willing to endure what Jose was asked to endure. Israel was much more unfaithful than Gomer. for hundreds of years. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and, and like I mean, like you said at the beginning, the day he said. I'm going to marry you. You know, we're, we're going to be joined together. Let me go. Moses goes up on the mountain to bring down what would effectively sort of be like the ring, like the, you know, I'm going to bring down like the sign. Let me go get the ring. And in between going to get the ring and bring it back to her, she's already committed adultery for the first time. And this is just the first time that she does it. And then she continues for hundreds of years. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, it just, it is, it, you, you cannot stress how unfaithful Israel was to God. And so when you look at his long-suffering nature, I mean, it's like you just you you can't you can't even fathom how long-suffering he was. You know, and as we say these things, and obviously we're saying there's a point for divorce or a place for divorce. There's a place for remarriage, and there's a lot of you know reformed pastors that would disagree. But I think they actually have a, a hermeneutical problem that they've got an issue with how they're looking at Scripture to come to that conclusion. And at the same time, I'm very sympathetic for why they would come to that conclusion. We look around in the nation, and I think for the last 40 years, we've basically had an average of divorce rate of 50%, while the percentage of people who get married is declining. Right. And so you have fewer divorces, but you also have fewer marriages. But basically, they still have them end in divorce. And so you look at that, and you look at the carnage that it has done on our culture. And it's very tempting to go, so divorce should always be wrong. The problem is, 
we're not allowed to do that. We have to say, what does God say about it? And so a lot of people like look at the Mark 10 passage, which is a parallel passage to Matthew 19. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they go, well, that one's clear. In this case, there's no exception for adultery. It's just if you marry again, you've committed adultery. And so they just go, there is no remarriage, that the only person you can marry again is the person who you divorced. But there's problems with that. And a basic problem is that's contrary to, you know, one of the most common hermeneutical principles is the more explicit passage overrules the, you know, the less explicit passage. They're both talking about the same thing. They're the same situation. But there were more words in the other ones that gave exceptions. And you can't say Mark 10 trumps Matthew 19 because it all has to be harmonizable. But it's easy to read Matthew, Mark 10 and go, Jesus wasn't giving all the details in the context of what he was talking about. He didn't give all the details. But in Matthew 19, when he's giving more explicit teaching, he did. So the clearer passage is always supposed to, you know, it has to be harmonized. But that's a way to harmonize it. It's really hard to harmonize it the other way where you go, Mark 10 is saying there's no exception. So Matthew 19 was what, wrong? Right. That's not harmonization. That's, that's contrary to how you should handle the word of God. Right, because he was making a specific point there, which you can make the same point today. <coughs> you could say people in America, you know, the, the people in America who are divorcing their wives, divorcing their husbands, and then going to others are committing adultery. As a general rule, that's the, that's the case. Now, there are example, many examples of the millions of people in America where that's not the case, but that's the basic rule is that this is what's happening. And you look at how Peter hears it, right? Because Peter then says, nobody should ever get married. And then Christ goes, well, some, you know, there's not that many people that have the gift of being a eunuch. So, yeah, if you can't marry, that's fine. But that's not how most people are. And so Peter certainly heard it the way that you're saying, that he's going, everybody just thinks you're free to divorce whenever you want. And even the idea of sexual immorality being a constraint, that's just too constraining, was Peter and the rest of the disciples' response. I mean, and you can even see it in a sense of there's a part of it where in a society where you're not exp- where sexual immorality is low, you would expect marriages to be permanent. You know what I mean? There's just this, I mean, these things would start to go together. There's a part of where if you go, almost no one cheats on their, on their spouse, you would go, well, if you marry somebody, you're going to be married to them forever. That would just be your immediate reaction. And so sort of there's this view that based on the nature of the culture you're dealing with at the time, your knee-jerk reaction to hearing some of those things would start to, you know what I mean, would start to shift. And so, I mean, if, you're, if your predisposition would be is, of course we're not going to cheat. That means I'm going to be married to this person for, you know. I right. mean, it's, it's just a very interesting thing that we're so used to the idea of infidelity is so common that we're looking and going, well, there would just be lots and lots of divorces. But in the end, I mean, these things flow together. When you start treating marriage correctly, it changes the infi- – I mean, it, you know, they, they – Because they infidelity didn't used to be nearly as common in the United States when marriage was taken more seriously. Right. I mean, it, when adultery was required for a divorce, there were a lot less divorces. It's when Reagan came along with his no-fault divorce that all of a sudden, you know, he said, how dare they swear make me swear that I committed adultery. So he basically committed perjury in order to get divorced and said, this is horrible to make anybody do this. Well, no, that was actually a real constraint to actually keep marriages whole, to protect children, to protect spouses, to protect wives. A nation. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we've just decided that we're going to destroy all these families for the sake of somebody's pride. Right. This is kind of reiterating, but if you, if you hold that view that you can't get married again, then you have a real problem with Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. He carried me away in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. You have problems with the Lord's Supper, picturing the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. You have the, the second coming, which is the bride you know, descending from heaven. You have all these pictures about Christ, right? The culmination of history is Christ's marriage to the church. 
Well, if you say if Christ already said he was married to Israel and to to Judah, so how in the world do you reconcile that no one can remarry and still have the church as the bride of Christ? I mean, that's a big problem. Now, in dispensational eschatology, they basically kind of say that he never could divorce Israel, that that was impossible. But a lot of the people that are are saying these kind of things are reformed, and, and it like really fights against the eschatology of the scriptures. Basically, in the end, there's a part of it where you either go, the things on earth are more real than the things in heaven. And that starts to be another issue as well, is you kind of have to go, the heavenly things are so they're just they they're don't kind of they don't ephemeral, have to right yeah. and and that that's a that's a major problem because in the end the whole point of all these is that it passes away and the heavenly things are eternal and so if the eternal things are ephemeral you just start having all kinds of other issues as well and this has been a problem in the church for years with the view of heaven and you know and like the, being in the clouds and I mean no heaven the is heart playing heaven heart has playing. substance on, heaven has reality yeah. and there is. There is more to come. Well, heaven because, and earth become one. Right. And so, I mean, and so, and the fact that God says he desires godly offspring and all this, I mean, all these things is the whole point of that union is to produce something, is to cause these things to go forth. There will be judging of angels. There will be, there will be glory forevermore. And that glory forevermore won't be less than what came before it. I think the way that you started describing it is a way that we we sort of gravitate to thinking about how god communicates with us that that we have this picture of god as the great anthropologist in the sky and he's decided to make a study of man and he looks down at man and he sees oh they get married they they marry and are given in marriage i can use that right i can use that in order to communicate deep and heavenly things to them in in lisping tones they can understand or, it, so it could be that way, or it could be that God created these things from the beginning in order that we would understand. And we can, and right. that, that he's, he's not, he is. Understand n- things about him, not ex- understand things about exactly. us. Exactly. Yes. God is, God is not like going to some far off, you know, you hear about missionary stories where a missionary will go into a culture and realize, oh, they've got this practice here that I can use that practice in order to introduce them to things about the gospel. The perfectly child, fine. Yeah, like exactly. That. Very much so. That's good. God's not like that. God doesn't have to study humans and then figure out how to communicate with them. He created things that we participate in so that we can learn about him, not the other way around. So that's kind of the Old Testament, but it gets actually more explicit in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And that language there at the end is very important because he's using terms and concepts that he's used before. And so those concepts before, it's like in in Romans 7, 2, and 3, for a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. She's in bondage to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, although she has married another man. So the picture in 1 Corinthians 7, both of these written by Paul, is that she stops being under bondage to that unbeliever that abandoned her which I would argue that the picture there is assumed sexual immorality. If he leaves her, there was a reason he wanted to get married in the first place because he burned, and so he leaves, and she's allowed. She's not under bondage in such cases. And the only bondage that she was under before was under the bondage of the law of her husband. So she's not under that bondage, which in Romans 7, it's very clear, that means you can remarry. I mean, and I think this is really important because it— it starts to explain 
the picture of marriage in different ways. I mean, it's starting to talk about the way that you view the law, the way that a wife is bound under the law. And it starts to talk about understanding how that ties to those who are unsaved, how that ties to those who are saved. I mean, it's, it's, it's laying, like you said, there's a part of it where the gospel is more complex and it's showing you some of that complexity to it. And you can't just, you don't just get to go, oh, it's all really easy. It's not just perfectly simple. It's not super complicated. It's not like you, I mean, if you were creating a list, there wouldn't be that many different categories. But you can't just create this one simple bulleted list and go, you can marry into you're this. Married, you're married, you're married, you're never, can never be unmarried. Right, and you're so done. I mean, and, and so it is, it's, it's really useful. I mean, and one of the things is, is, Scripture requires you to do this. Scripture requires you to read a passage in 1 Corinthians and read a passage in Romans and read a passage in Matthew and read a passage in Mark and go, okay, I need to look at these. Read, go back Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and look at them and go, what's being said here? Because in the end, there are lots of different variations on this. And if you look and you go out there and talk to people, there's a, I mean, when you see discussions about this, People say all sorts of things about when you're allowed to divorce, and they they don't go to they don't go to all these passages. <laughs> I mean, they'll they'll just say, well, obviously in this case, of course you can divorce, and and same with the people who argue that you can't remarry. What they end up doing is going to like the Luke passage or the Mark passage. They don't read the Matthew passage, and they 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 don't look at the big picture. It's really important to see the big picture of Christ in Israel and Judah to be able to understand divorce. Because until you understand that, you don't understand divorce. And if you don't understand that Christ marries the church, you don't really understand divorce. And so I think a lot of people that do it, they want to cherry pick instead of, I mean, I went through this afternoon, every time divorce is mentioned in the scriptures. And there aren't that many times. It's not that hard. And you start to find things that you, that the idea that you can never remarry, it's really hard to reconcile it. And, and when you read this, I mean, what's, to me, what was interesting is you think about it. If you read that passage where it talks about divorces like bloodstained garments. So there's this part where Paul's talking and he's going, you don't want to rip yourself asunder from someone for no reason. If they're willing to live with you, don't do this violence. I mean, and so when you start laying these verses over each other, it helps you understand the passage because Paul's going, don't do this for no reason. Don't just do this because, I mean, because in Corinthians, he had just been writing earlier talking about what a light and darkness have fellowship with one another. You know, he's talking about that you can't have these things be joined together. And so there's a part of it where you could see Christians go, well, if I marry someone, I get saved, and then how can we be in fellowship? So I should obviously put them away. And so, and so you can see Paul's giving them an understanding of you should not join yourself to them, but understand this is the level to which God hates divorce, is he would rather have you live in harmony with someone who is an unbeliever than he would have you do this. And so when you start reading these verses and laying them over top of each other, it starts to make sense and it starts to set this, this magnitude over what certain things are worth and how God actually views them. God really hates divorce. He really doesn't want you to do it, even though he's telling Christians, don't be joined with an unbeliever. And I mean, and then he goes on and says, you know, but God has called us to peace. It's important to understand the context of that. The context of that is from just a few verses earlier. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, 9. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So when Paul then, like four verses later, after you know, completing the subject, he's still talking about marriage. He says, you know, but let there be peace. He recognizes that there are people that, that they won't have peace. And I know people that, that hold to the doctrine of that you're not allowed to remarry, that they have no peace. And God doesn't call us to that. He actually says you're not under bondage in such a case. It's not like I'm saved, and so I witness to my my wife, and she abandons me. So that means that I never have intimacy with a woman again. I never have a mother for my children again. I never, I never can build a family again. That's not what God is saying. That's not what God is charging him with. He's saying there is no bondage in such a case that he calls you to peace. And so there's the peace of not having the strife in the household if the— if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, but there's also the peace afterwards. And the, these things really speak to 
the nature of God and God's love and care for man. I mean, like when he says he understands our frame, he remembers that we are dust. There are these parts of where he fleshes this out in a sense in Scripture going, this is the way that I understand these things, that he gives us, he structures things so we can understand how he's made provision. So you talked uh, earlier about how um, to understand these passages, you need to understand the bigger picture. So one way that some people interpret this um, is is saying that marriage is a covenant, um, and you know which is which is true. You know it's a covenant between yes. uh, the husband and the wife. Um, but therefore, you know when it says adultery, it's meaning breaking covenant, which adultery is breaking covenant. But that that would then imply that other breakings of the marriage covenant um, would also be grounds for divorce. Like what other breakings of the marriage? Well, covenant? like do you mean I the mean, vows, or do you mean do you, well, well, sure, but you know, like provision. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, this is you know the big the big issue is like what about abuse? You know, I mean, now right. it's all emotional abuse, but you know, physical abuse is that grounds if there's no sexual immorality? And God's really explicit. The answer is no. I mean, that's what that's what the apostles thought the answer was when they go. So when can you divorce? And I mean, it wasn't the apostles asking, but but the apostles were really surprised at Christ's answers because his answer was no, only sexual immorality. So part of it we have to understand what's going on there because the true breaking of the covenant is when the two become one with somebody else. Because the sexual immorality, it, it's not this random thing that God chose. He chose this picture that two shall become one. And so when you commit sexual adult when you commit adultery with somebody else, you've brought another person into that marriage. You have actually divided that marriage in a different way than abuse does even. Paige Patterson, right? He got dismissed because he gave the advice to a woman that you are not to divorce because your husband's hitting you. But he also said you should go to the police. But they dismissed him anyway. Well, that is actually biblical advice. That it's really dangerous, this idea that we can just make up new rules and say that because it's physical abuse that somehow that's breaking covenant. That's not the picture that is the picture of Christ and Israel. Christ and Israel, they were committing idolatry with other gods. That's why Christ had the right to divorce them. They did lots of other terrible things. They committed murder. They did all kinds of things. But God only points to the one thing that parallels to adultery to say this is my grounds for divorce because that's the only ground that God gave. That doesn't mean that a wife who's being abused, that she shouldn't bring in other authorities. She certainly should. It's ridiculous not to. If he's hurting her, get away from I mean, she doesn't right. have to stand there and let him hit her, right? I mean, She doesn't have to stand there, but she should go get other people involved that just because they're married doesn't mean that he has the right to use her as a punching bag. Not at all. It's quite the opposite. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that she has the right to divorce. Because divorce is, I mean, you don't solve violence by committing what, in the eyes of God, is murder. There are churches who have someone who is, in the, you know, their husband is beating them, and they'll go, well, you have to go back and submit to his beating. And, I mean, it, that's terrible. That too. is absolutely wrong. I mean, it is. <laughs> My advice if somebody tells that is, have you called the police yet? The police say it's against the law. You should call the police. Right. And and if you're talking about a church situation where this is going on and that husband's a church member, then, you know, why is he not under church discipline? If this is an unrepentant sin, right. you know, you you need to get to the point where you're saying you're not a Christian. If it's established that he's right. doing it, it's a pretty fast track to, yeah, it's the, the, you right. need to be put out of the church, right? I mean, this is, and people act like, oh, we can't do that, or we, that wouldn't be right to do. I mean, this is just, I mean, it's... It's really simple, right? If you do not love the brother who you see, you do not love God who you don't see. If you're beating your wife, you don't love your closest brother. So clearly you don't love God, so just put them out of the church. If you can prove that they're beating their wife, put them out of the church. It's a no-brainer. It doesn't, it's as, it's as decisive as First Corinthians 5, where he goes, he's having his mother, his father's wife as soon as you find that out if that's what somebody's doing to their wife they're not a christian just tell them that do it force it make it expose it and these are real pressures that put on people that constrain behavior when you when you are saying that there's you know a whole list of other um reasons why you can divorce you're really ignoring um you're 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 ignoring the you know the verse in malachi that is saying that it's like covering your garments with violence you know, so 
if you if you are doing it wrongly, you are being the one that right. you know perhaps even more violent. You know, pr- you know you're covering your garments with blood, so you don't you don't want to be the person who's doing even more violence um, than you know what you endured. To that, you add adultery because God says if you go then and marry another one, or if He goes and marries another one, then you've committed adultery, and so you've added adultery and murder to to His sin of beating you. Right. That's not a good solution. And I think this is something that even you know you look. And people, you know, people in their unsafe people often recognize this. You know, how many people are there who are being uh, physically abused and yet choose, you know, maybe they're not even married and yet they choose to stay in that relationship because they see benefits to it. Now, many of them may be making the wrong decision, but, you know, they see that this is actually more beneficial to me to stay in this than to leave. Now, not again, not that they're right. But they they are innately understanding that to break that relationship is some form of violence, and that the, and that they're weighing those against each other. I mean, one of the things we've talked about in other episodes is because we've treated sin like the sin of someone doing things as something that can't really be dealt with, that it can't be changed. That we don't we don't think that people can be con- we don't be- actually believe that sin can be constrained. And there's this part of it where if the church was actually doing what it was supposed to do, if, if the church was actually, if the church heard about this and the church was involved with, involved with calling the police and being, because they know of violence happening against someone, if the church was there and these things were happening and the, and the government was doing what they're supposed to do and all these things were happening, you would have a constraint of sin. You would have a greater constraint of sin. Part of the reason we have the world we live in is because everybody acts like you can't do anything about sin. Nothing can be done about sin except add more sin to the situation. Like you were talking about, just add, add adultery to it, add murder to it, add all these additional things to it. And so, and then, I mean, this is, this is where, why we are where we are, is we have run from the truth. We've run from the truth that lightness, light dispels darkness. It's not like hard, but what we want to do is keep things in the dark. So you find out somebody's beating their wife and you don't do anything about it instead of exposing it to the church. You don't do anything about it by putting them out. I mean, you, you just ignore it instead of putting them out. I mean, so often we act like there's no other solution to this problem except something that God didn't command, as if God didn't know our frame, as if God didn't know who we were. God knows the right solution, and he tells us the right solution, but we have to do it. And a lot of the right solution is exposure. It's to go, this is what you're doing, and make people know it, and make people understand it, because a lot shame is very powerful in terms of constraining things. But yet we don't want to use that. We want to go, oh, yeah, we just this is a private matter between them, instead of going, no, he started to beat his wife. That's a public matter, especially if he disparages the name of Christ in it. We're, we're more concerned about the shame that would come on the church if it were known that these sorts of things happened in the church or in families that are in the church and it's hard work to deal with it it it's, is hard work to deal is, with it as it somebody who's so, dealt with it it's so much easier for the sin to just remain hidden and i and i don't have to deal with that but i mean let's I mean, what scripture says about the person who's beating his wife is what should be done to him is the rod is for the back of fools you know what I mean? Is that that's that's what the civil magistrate should do to him? Is he should be beaten for his an iniquity. eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Right. And so I mean, this is I mean, it would be a really simple solution, <laughs> and it would stop his beating his wife really quickly if you think about it. Think how quickly that you know somebody gives their wife a black eye, so you take him out in a public place and you hit him in the eye to give him a black eye. It'll it'll change his behavior really quickly. Most people that do that, they're cowards. And they'll be afraid to get a black eye. And so it's not like these things. I mean, it's really easy to constrain it if we simply obeyed what God said. I go to Nigeria. In Nigeria, the police won't do anything. The church won't do anything. No one will do anything. In America, the police will still do it. But most women that do it, they won't press charges. The church should be pushing them to press charges. Too often the church is going, oh, mercy, 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 when that's merciless. Because right. you're allowing him to continue in his sin. You are not showing him mercy. You're showing him false mercy. You know, the, the, the mercy of the wicked is cruelty. That's the picture there. Where you go, oh, we're going to show mercy to you so that you go beat your wife harder. That's not merciful. That's mean. That's cruel. And so the church needs to, it should just step up and do those things that it should be doing. And then these problems are much easier to deal with. We've created problems and then we go, the only solution is divorce. Well, how about we uncreate the problems? 
one of the things that's the result of thinking about marriage correctly also is people marry better. When you think of marriage as permanent, when you think of marriage as something you're going into and divorce is an absolute last resort. When you look and going, when you look, when you go, abuse isn't a reason that you're able to get divorced. It causes people to be more serious about who they marry. It causes people, you know, we, it, there was a time period where we said, you know, people, you know, look at, Pe- look at Peter's reaction. Who should get married then? There's a part of it where, I mean, you go, you don't go out and get married lightly. If you treat it as something that you can just do and you can just cast away whenever, if you treat it as something that isn't violence, if you treat it as something that isn't doing murder, then you marry more carefully. And and this is just, I mean, everything changes from that. And you just look at what's what's happened over the last 70 years in America, right? 70 years ago, most states required, you know, some evidence of adultery in order for you to be divorced. And then... You know, no-fault divorce came along, which basically says you can divorce for any reason that you want to. It doesn't require adultery anymore. It just requires that you have to agree. And then divorce increases, and then marriage starts to disappear. Because we've basically, when you say marriage is permanent unless there's adultery, people take marriage more seriously. When you say you can leave it whenever you want, people take marriage a lot less seriously. And then you say, but there's a financial penalty if you leave because you'll have to pay alimony and child support. So then you get, just go, well, marriage doesn't really mean anything anyway. We can leave whenever we want. So therefore, we'll just shack up and we won't actually get married at all. And marriage becomes this thing that isn't significant. It's just something that you do if you want to do a show for your friends and have a party. And then all of a sudden it becomes, well, two homosexuals can marry. I mean, this is the progression over the last 70 years of what's happened to marriage in this country. And we should recognize it really starts with the weakening of the importance of marriage by saying divorce should be easy. And it, and, and it touches on so many other things because in the end you look at the decline of the quality of political candidates. And there was a part of it where there was a point where people looked and they said, I'm not going to elect anybody who has been unfaithful to their spouse. I'm not going to elect someone who wasn't able to have a family and keep them together. I mean, I'm not saying this was always a requirement, but I'm saying it was something that people valued. And because they valued that, they valued the product of that and they valued the result of that. So there was a part of it where you had this, you had a little bit of a limiter on at least they were someone who knew how to keep their word in a certain way. At least they were someone. And so it's it's not just culture, you know. It's not just the familial things that fell apart. It's cultural things that were held together. It was that leaders were better leaders. It was it was all or, of these or things. Or they were better hypocrites, you know. Well, they had to walk in darkness more successfully, more carefully. That's what I mean. I know exactly. I, I knew yeah. that was exactly what you meant. That there's like they had to make an effort to appear to be to have could, a loving. Could family. you imagine Donald Trump being the conservative candidate fifty years ago? 30 years ago. It's just, it's unthinkable. Look at JFK. The liberal candidate had to put on a show that he wasn't committing adultery and all these other things that he was doing. He had to put the show on, otherwise he couldn't get elected. And that, you know, look at how much shift that has happened since We're not saying that the politicians are necessarily better. We're saying what we're willing to accept from a politician, that has shifted. And in the end, the politicians, in some ways, were better as a result. At least they had to put a lot more effort into maintaining, and that effort is a constraint on sin, right. so they are better. That, which, that, I mean, that's uh, not, all I mean Maybe by not it, yes. in the heart, but in their behavior, they're right. better because they have to be a lot more careful. And, and it's easy to see that it's better now than it would be in 40 years because a lot of the politicians are from a previous generation. And you even I mean, see, you, you even see how many of the newer politicians are getting divorced in office. I mean, it's a lot. And you look at like yeah, like Matt Getz who has like serious problems that he's supporting the the weird woman and and he's considered a conservative icon. I mean these things are just so so contrary to reason. But yet this is what we embrace because we can no longer discern these things. I mean this is the effect of sin, the effect of embracing sin, the effect of calling evil good is to make yourself blind. There's there's another thing that's out there too, which is the idea that only men can divorce women, women can't divorce men. You can understand why that's theirs because the way that the text is written is if a man writes a certificate of divorce and then when it's quoted in the New Testament it kind of keeps that structure to it. But you know, Mark does at least 
talked about both, right? I mean, right, right. You know, and and but by the time you get to Paul in First Corinthians seven, it's very clear. It's very parallel. It is very clear that in cases where a brother or a sister, you know, it's it's not one or the other. Right. So how do we think about those Old Testament passages? Well, I think there's two things. One, you say it's case law, right. and God's talking about specific cases. But then you see why he's talking about those specific cases, because those are the ones that are going to apply to God's own behavior when he's dealing with Israel and Judah. And you look in, in the Old Testament, there was there was many times where men had multiple wives, and you see almost, I don't know of any times where you see a woman having multiple husbands. And so... You know, that was sin. You know, Christ was, you know, from the beginning, it was not so. And so the the idea of the things that were that were regulated is the right term because they weren't, you know, they weren't allowed like they're okay. They were regulated in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that they were acceptable or good. And so, you know, some of those things about it being, you know, most of the divorce does look like just husbands in the Old Testament, but but from the beginning it wasn't so. You know, kind of to cycle back as we're getting ready to to be done with this episode is to remember the seriousness of the hardness of heart. Because, you know, in First Kings 9, this is right after Solomon dedicates the temple. And then God comes and speaks. And he says, but if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. In this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. When we look at Israel and we look at all the things that happened to Israel, that is what the picture of divorce is. And we're supposed to recognize that. That's how bad divorce is. We look at the Holocaust. We look at all the things that happened to Israel. God is saying, I made them the picture of a divorcee. This is what happens. And so we treat divorce and we go, oh, no-fault divorce, no big deal. We're supposed to look at Israel and go, this is what it looks like to be divorced. This is, this is the, the picture for a nation to be divorced from God. And clearly it's more serious when you're a nation that's divorced from God. But God set that picture out there, and he puts the picture in our lives and makes it miserable when, when people get divorced, that they feel like they've committed murder. A lot of times go, oh, I'll be so happy once I get divorced, but that is a very rare emotion that after divorce people are happy. They're usually miserable because God made it so it would be miserable. And it, he did it so, because it is a picture of what happens when there's a people who name the name of God, but they aren't faithful to him, that they worship other gods. And so when we think about divorce, let's remember the picture. This is you go to church, but you're not really serious about church. You're chasing money. You're more interested in money than you are in the things of God. That's divorce. That's what God does when he says you are that hard-hearted. And in the end, he sends people to hell for it. And when you don't take that passage in 1 Kings seriously, you believe—I mean, there are people who they talk about from an eschatological point of view, the promises God made to Israel. That was a promise that God made to Israel. That verse was a promise. If you do this, I will cast you out. I will make you a byword among all peoples. God did that. And there's this part where people go, well, he didn't, you know, he, he will never cast them away completely. What there, about Jeremiah 3? <laughs> right. And, so, and there's this part where he goes, this is a promise that he made to Israel. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? Do you actually understand that the picture of divorce is that God keeps his word? God is not one who—God is faithful. God does not change. God keeps his word. And so people read Romans eleven twenty five through 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob— for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That all Israel there, it would be contrary to Jeremiah 3 for that to be national Israel. That has to be spiritual Israel because God doesn't lie. So as we consider divorce, it's really easy when you see all the things that are going on around us in this country and the damage of divorce to swing too far the other way and start to go, oh, you can't remarry. This is always a, a warning that that is repeated many times in Deuteronomy, like in Deuteronomy 5.32. 
Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. When we think about divorce and remarriage, we need to make sure we're walking on the narrow path that God said. Let's not add to his law and say you can never remarry. Let's not subtract from it and say that you can, you can, you know, marriage doesn't matter. You can, it's so easy to go off on the right or the left instead of actually just walking the narrow path that God has given us. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.